what becomes sort of narrower or more complicated is that the more the things that you do, the harder it is to really find the elements that you totally haven't explored. And for me, that's always the part that's the most exciting, the most kind of terrifying, the most engaging, is the, is the bit that is not relying on anything else, is not relying on some previous incarnation. It's raw and it's trying to discover it for the first time and that is and just keeping that alive is 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 really important because that really allows you to continue to explore and continue to kind of push yourself in all of these these different ways it's why i wanted to be an actor and it's what continues my journey as an actor and as a writer and as a director Chiwetel Ejiofor was just 19 years old when he was cast in Steven Spielberg's Amistad in 1997. In the years since, he's become one of Britain's most respected actors, starring to great acclaim on stage and in films such as Kinky Boots in 2005 and 12 Years a Slave in 2013, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture. His latest project takes him for the first time behind the camera, as well as in front. In The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, Ejiofor plays a farmer in Malawi, struggling to provide for and protect his family as the rain stops falling and the threat of famine draws ever closer. Until his son happens upon an idea that might be as unlikely as it is ingenious. As director, Ejiofor delivers this extraordinary true story with a wonderfully refined artistic touch, carefully matching the drama with all of this African nation's stunning beauty. I'm Ben Ryland, and I'm pleased to say that Chiwetel Ejiofor joins me here at Midori House in London for The Big Interview. Chiwetel Ejiofor, welcome to The Big Interview. Hi, pleasure to be here, thank you. Now, you were only 19, as I understand it, when you were cast by Steven Spielberg in Amistad. That was in 1997. Take me back to that moment. I was at drama school. I was at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, and Spielberg's casting directors were um, casting for Amistad. And so I went along. You know, we weren't technically supposed to be auditioning whilst at drama school but they allowed us to because it was Spielberg and it was a big deal and it would have been good auditioning practice and so I did and uh, you know I had been working with the National Youth Theatre for a while and so actually the casting agent who in the UK had seen me in a show for them and, and that was the kind of route to that audition in a way and then I was cast in Amistad and it was a kind of I, I couldn't really believe it it was a, an extraordinary moment I was just walking around trying not to get hit by a bus by, for about three <laughs> weeks until I left to go to Los Angeles so it's obviously an enormous leap to make for a 19 year old to go into a Spielberg film at all uh, let alone that early in your career had you already decided that you wanted to be an actor full-time that you wanted to make that your actual profession for the rest of your life was that something that was already in your mind at that point yeah, I think I had made that decision. I um I think I'd made that decision in my in my teens. I hadn't really made a decision that it would involve film in any way. My passion at that point was theater and uh, and that's why I was so involved in theater and in, in the National Youth Theater and then why I went to drama school, you know, in the first place. And so my kind of projected idea of where life would take me was was my hopeful idea was to into the bigger theater companies, you know, which I did get a chance then to work with like the National Theater and so on and spend a life working in that capacity. So the Spielberg thing really opened up this idea of film for me for the first time in any kind of real way. Why do you think people act? 
Well, I think it's a variety of reasons, you know. I think that for me, which is really all I can speak to, it was uh, an extraordinary form of, of self-expression. You know, I was really kind of moved. I remember reading, I was sitting in school when I was maybe about 13, and um, and I was uh, listening to a teacher talking through Henry the Fourth, Part One, and there was a sequence of how sort of talking about his sort of crisis of his own sort of youth and and teenage kind of angst, or maybe he's a little bit older. And uh, and I really related to it. I related to it in a really powerful way. I'd always kind of been slightly bored or sort of, you know, it was a sort of wet Wednesday and I was like, but I really connected to this to this idea. And I and I thought that um, that Shakespeare was really onto something. You know, I thought that I'd discovered Shakespeare. You know, I would tell people, this guy is amazing. He's really speaking to things that I feel, you know. Uh, and people were like, yeah, that he's kind of well known. And um, and I think that that is what inspired me to go to the theatre and to see there was a theatre at my school, the Edward Allen Hall. And I went down there because I was curious about the format that these things were expressed in. And that was the beginning of that journey for me, the idea of being able to express ideas, feelings, thoughts that I had through the kind of shield of somebody else's writing or so. But to communicate in that way and to express myself in that kind of fashion was really powerful for me at that age. And so that made me want to continue to pursue it and it made me want to be an actor, that form of self-expression. Sometimes when you talk to actors, they will say that, oh, they never planned on being an actor. They sort of just fell into that later, maybe later in school or later in life because it was something that they found just really interested them. But the way you speak about it, there's obviously a, a bit of childish curiosity that this is stemmed from because you were interested and knew you wanted to be an actor so early in your life. Does that mean perhaps that rather than learning the craft, you sort of grew into the craft? Do you find there's a bit of a difference in the way you approach it in that you didn't necessarily have to learn how to be an actor? You sort of were an actor and then you you had to learn how to be a professional actor, so to speak. Maybe. I mean, I definitely just felt that the process of being an actor was just about doing it you know it wasn't really about decision making in a certain way and um, and whenever I found that I'd hit a kind of wall or I was confused about something you know then I would go and try and find out those things and that's when I would kind of talk to people who were doing it and they were in the process of doing it but it was all about for me theory in a sense it wasn't kind of practical I wanted to learn about acting I wanted to learn about you know the ideas of being an actor and how that is done I was obsessed with arc for so long you know just how people tell stories and go on a journey in character how they go on an arc in theater how they take an audience kind of on a train and take and arrive at this other destination and how people and characters kind of change over time it took me a long time before I kind of let go of that a little bit because it's not as helpful in some ways in film acting. But it was something that I was so kind of obsessed with growing up. And obviously Shakespeare, is again, is this is a rooted way of taking characters through these extraordinary arcs, you know, uh, and landing them in totally different spaces and places and feelings than they sort of start in. And I was always curious about the technical way of doing that the technical way of taking an audience on a journey just through performance through voice you know so those were things that I thought were very useful about formally studying acting as much as one can but then obviously just learning it in the spaces that you are doing it you know it's one of those professions that is like all professions really that is so vocational that the the process of doing it is of such value 
in terms of learning about it and, and learning what works, what doesn't work and so on. Your own arc has been going for about 20 years now, the arc of your career at least anyway. What about all of that experience that you've got now? Because you've done the theatre, you've done movies, you've won the big awards, you've been surrounded by the, the best of the best when it comes to screen acting, stage acting. Does that sort of experience change the way you approach the nitty gritty of acting? No, I think that the nitty gritty, you know, I think it stays more or less the same. What becomes sort of narrower or more complicated is that the more the things that you do, the harder it is to really find the elements that you totally haven't explored. And for me, that's always the part that's the most exciting, the most kind of terrifying, the most engaging is the, is the bit that is not relying on anything else, is not relying on some previous incarnation. It's raw and it's trying to discover it for the first time and that is and just keeping that alive is 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 really important because that really allows you to continue to explore and continue to kind of push yourself in all of these these different ways it's why i wanted to be an actor and it's what continues my journey as an actor and as a writer and as a director you know that it's trying to find those areas that i that i haven't explored and what that informs about myself what i think that that informs in terms of an audience you know what i think that informs in terms of storytelling and so on you know so the more experiences you have i suppose the more you're still hunting for for what's still there and you know there's loads it turns out that there's still there and that's that's an exciting part of the process most people don't perform for a living if you can in your best way possible can you explain to us what is it actually like to step out there on stage and inhabit someone else's skin for two and a half hours in front of thousands of people night after night what is that experience actually like for you well it can vary i remember there was a time when I, you know, I was speaking to another actor about this as well, about that point when you give up walking on stage, that there's a point where, you know, I used to wait in the wings and then my cue would arrive and I would kind of inhale, change my body position and walk on stage to begin. At a certain point that sort of changed and I didn't have that moment of preparation and that moment of adjustment and change. And I just would walk on stage. Like I would just cross into, cross that line onto stage. And I would feel that essentially as a natural act, as an extension. And if there was something that I needed to do to get into character, I would have done that way before. You know, I would have done that in the afternoon before the show. You know, I would have been already arriving at that place so that there wasn't a kind of adjustment to be made, that acting became a part of just existing in character. And somehow that simplicity or that in kind of engagement, that sort of simple engagement, I think allows an audience potentially, hopefully, to kind of lean forward. They're not being presented with something, you know, they're not being dictated to. They're just allowed to kind of lean forward and engage in, a sort of, I suppose, a storytelling tradition and a storytelling expanse, you know, that is gentle and is about all of that rehearsal, all of that pre-thought, but it's all of that is thrown away and what it boils down to is a very simple and hopefully kind of elegant engagement of performance of uh, character of actor and audience and to kind of recall and remember at all points that that is the essence of it that it's the community of you all trying to engage in a narrative in a story do you still get nervous or did you ever get nervous it catches me off guard when i do at times it's not something that I um, 
Uh, it's not something that happens all the time. I'm just laughing because I remember suddenly the last time that I was doing a play. I was doing a show at the the National, Everyman. My entrance was from the top of the Olivier on wires falling down onto the stage. So I would begin the show holding on to this bar at the top of the Olivier with this sheer drop of like 50 feet or whatever it was down below with these wires on, but, you know, nonetheless... So I was quite nervous at the beginning, <laughs> the beginning of that show. Every, every performance was nerve-wracking. In fact, <laughs> landing on the stage to begin the actual show was this great moment of relief. You know? <laughs> so it was sort of an inverted experience. But yeah, I do get nervous occasionally. And I'm always intrigued by, by why. What is it that has created that moment of, of nerves? And then they settle or they go away and I don't. And then I sort of think about it afterwards and, and investigate what that is. It generally tends to be some element of that moment that you're not entirely sure about. or you're not, you're sort of, you know, investigating those moments is, is very useful in uncovering maybe something that you're not doing or thinking about or not exploring fully. Uh, we are talking about an industry where there are so many respected names going back to longer than anyone can remember. When it comes to acting or even just navigating what could be termed as a public lifestyle, you are a public figure and you have to deal with that now, even though, you know, really you're just an actor, but you are in the public eye. Are there people that you turn to for advice or words of wisdom when you need something to, to be a bit of an anchor for you to bring you back down to earth? I mean, not really in the sense of kind of navigating what it is to be an actor in this space and in the kind of contemporary world. And there are so many different there are so many different ways of doing it. You know, I feel like when I was starting out, there were only a few kind of examples of what it meant to be in the public eye. And now there are so many. There are vast ways of being in the public eye, you know. And certainly with social media and the rise of Instagram stars, you know, there is a whole host of things and people that I get chased down the street that I've never heard of, never seen in my life, and don't know even really which platform they are well known on, you know. It's a sort of different time, I think, than when I was growing up to be in the public eye, to be famous. And there's so many different examples of kind of how to do it. This feels like a pretty genteel way of being in the public eye actually now. You know, it used to be that being a film actor and a, and a theatre actor was there was a sort of a heavy spotlight on those things. And, and now it feels like with the rise of reality television and, like I say, social media, you know, it's actually a pretty relaxed way to be well known. Well, of course, you were nominated for an Oscar for your role in 12 Years a Slave. And being added to that Oscars world does inevitably bring its own kind of fame and its own kind of attention. And I recall you saying at one point that you were finding it difficult to navigate that time because your role in 12 Years a Slave, I mean, the film itself is a very, very serious film. It's, it's covering a very serious topic. And the Oscars, by definition, are a little bit silly, a little bit frothy. I wonder, how, how did you go about navigating that? And is that something you still find difficult, navigating this idea of being a celebrity, but also being a serious actor who sometimes takes on quite serious roles? I mean, it can happen. I mean, I definitely feel like in that example, it was a sort of extreme sense of that happening, you know, because I suppose because we'd started the process of launching the film and... I kind of immediately after the first couple of showings of the film, the narrative changed into one about the Oscars and to, and then the kind of campaigning narrative of an Oscar period. And I, and that sort of sharp turn threw me because 
obviously just being engaged with that story and with Solomon Northup's journey and and still being primed to talk about that, you know, and suddenly sort of finding yourself as the kind of person who's, you know, nobody, nobody really wants to talk to at the dinner party because he's a bit too serious, you know, that he's, uh, he's talking about man's inhumanity to man, you know, whereas when really the engine was suddenly moving towards something else, was towards the kind of awards and all of that. And, um, and all of that is great and was really exciting. And, uh, and, you know, I can't say enough that it was really kind of an amazing thing for the film and for the reputation of the film and for the size of the film and for the amount of people that it reached and touched. But yes, I certainly, at that kind of beginning sort of turning point, was slightly thrown for a loop by the kind of shifting gears and the change in, in dynamic. I was still within the context for a little bit of Solomon North and his experience. Does it bring an extra degree of responsibility for you as an actor or as a public figure? Because, of course, you are a, a black actor. You were cast in a Hollywood film and you're starring in big roles. Your, your roles get a lot of attention. But there are going to be people who look to you as an example, someone who carries the responsibility for representing others on the screen or on the stage. Is that something that do you feel the weight of carrying that? I mean, I don't actively feel it in a sense. Um, when I'm looking for a project and when I'm thinking about projects, I'm definitely thinking about things that kind of would engage me, that I would want to see. And certainly if that becomes about sort of representation, then yes, you know, if I'm looking at a project and I do think, is this a project that I would like to see within the, in those terms as well? You know, I, would I feel that that's inspiring or engaging and, you know, as a good representation of certain things, of a culture and a place? I think all of those things are, impo- are important, but I generate that not really from how you know, in the sort of nuance of the question, like, how will that be perceived? But what do I think about that? And then the hope is that if I pursue that as accurately as I can, and as honestly as I can, as truthfully as I can, then the hope is, of course, that other people also get the same things from it. I was thinking about something that you said very early in your career. Someone had said to you that, oh, well, you have to change your name. You can't be a mainstream movie star or a mainstream actor of any kind with a name like Chiwetel Ejiofor. And you absolutely refused. You said, if that means that you're only cast in African roles, then you didn't care. That reminded me of something that Rupert Everett told me once, which was uh, that he had never even considered staying in the closet, that he knew he was going to be a gay actor from day dot because the idea of him being someone else just felt ludicrous to him. Is that similar to what, what you see in your name? Is your name part of who you are? And to change that would be removing a part of who you are. I mean, I'm sure that's a, that's a part of it. For me, I didn't, you know, there was an implied negative in the conversation. You know, if you if you keep your name as Chiwetel Ejiofor, you're going to end up playing African parts. And I was like, well, where's the problem? <laughs> I, mean, I want to play African parts. You know, have you got a script? You know, the implied negative just didn't mean anything to me. I, you know, I felt that there was such there was such rich stories in Africa. And I'm talking about Africa in a way generically, but in Nigeria more specifically, you know, where I made films and obviously, you know, I, I shot a film there quite recently in Half of the Yellow Sun. And and then in, a, in other places in Africa where I've made films and am playing parts that are originated for characters who are of that cultural heritage is and still is incredibly exciting for me and uh, and I think a very rich place to come at performance and to come at uh, history and to come at all of those kind of epic dynamics of um, of being an actor so I was excited to just sort of 
get out there and to express myself and to express the world as I saw it in a kind of African and black diaspora in a way that I thought was enriching and positive. And so, so people kind of in some way claiming that I needed to do something differently in order to be sort of more appealing to something that wasn't really going to be that much of my story anyway, whatever I did, you know, whether you change your name or not, was slightly nonsensical to me. So I kind of ignored the advice and and I'm glad that I did. It's certainly been enriching to me to be able to move into the spaces that I've moved in with the confidence to do that. And so my hope is, you know, when you talk about Rupert Everett, that that's the kind of similar experience that he had, a desire, an active one to explore characters in any way he saw fit. And there should be that richness and there should be that diversity. And this idea of closing people down actually robs us all collectively of cultural experiences. It seems to represent some sort of paradoxical attitude in how we approach people in the public eye, because on one hand, we want people to be authentic, but on the other hand, we don't want them to be too authentic if it's a little bit inconvenient, I suppose. For you, it sounds as if it's important to you to maintain some degree of your roots in everything that you do, that, that you have you have an idea of what you want to be representing in your work, and that is getting to the truth of something. You referenced Nigeria before, and I understand that you are the, the child of Nigerian refugees, and uh, Nigeria is where your father actually passed away. Does that play a role in how you've navigated your career, wanting to maintain an element of your own personal truth in the work that you do on the screen and on the stage as well? For any actor, you know, for any person, really, you carry the weight of your own specific dynamics, you know, with you, and you carry the kind of the sort of joys and the sorrows of your entire kind of history, you know, with you and all and everything you do, whether you mean to or or not, whether you do it consciously or subconsciously, you know, we are the, the sum of our antecedents in that way. And, um, and so I am that and I am lifted and inspired by the journey of, you know, my parents and and grandparents and beyond. And I love that kind of representation. And I love that kind of specificity when you are approaching something and approaching work that that inspires you and knowing where that comes from and knowing the sort of journeys people have been on. I think that that's layered into all of the work that I do, hopefully, is something that is very specific always to me, you know. And I think that's one of the great things about acting, about writing, about directing, you know, is that ideas can come from a different and a disparate amount of places, but they whittle down to very specific things about you and you kind of bring those and morph into those ideas in a way. And it becomes about you and the way you see the world and also the way other people see the world in these kind of collaborative communities. And that is the kind of real joy of these kinds of these kinds of events, this kind of work. I was looking at how your career seemed to undergo this sort of meteoric rise and You've almost become more of a celebrity amongst your own peers than you have amongst people just in the general public. It seems as though everyone in the acting world just really reveres who you've become as an actor. And one gets the sense that you could have chosen any project as your directorial debut. What was it about the story, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, that stuck out to you, that, that made you think, I want to do this? Well, thank you for that. I don't know if that's entirely accurate, but I, it was very nice to hear. Um, the um, I read the book in about 2009 when it came out, almost 10 years ago, and, and I 
was deeply inspired by William Kemkwamba and his journey, you know, and his story, what he achieved in these circumstances. And and obviously this young boy going through with his community these real challenges, I mean, extraordinary for most of us, unimaginable challenges of this impending famine caused by a flood and then the sort of double punch of a drought after the land dried up. And him being pulled out of secondary school isn't, isn't free in Malawi and him sneaking into the library, into sneaking back into the school and getting into the library and looking at a book called Using Energy, an American textbook with the picture of a windmill on the front and thinking that he was going to try and pull together scraps and junk and whatever he could pull together in order to try and build a wind turbine to help his community. I was just deeply inspired by that story. On its face, I was just like, this is an incredible story of tenacity, of education, of this young man against the odds in this community. It just had all of these wider thematic implications that I felt had their place in a conversation with a, with a global audience, with anybody, anywhere, that could relate to the family dynamics, to the interpersonal dynamics, but also to this relationship to climate change, to deforestation, to economics, to all of these other elements, including governments and the circumstances of their overreach. And so, you know, I was kind of excited by all of those dynamics and all of those elements in the story to try to pull together a tale that I think people from very different backgrounds could connect to. One of the most striking things for me watching the film was that, especially in its dealing with the way the famine comes about, it feels on the face of it like something that we here in London or anywhere like London would struggle to understand because it's just not something we ever have to think about, famine. And yet the way it's tackled in the film, it does make you understand or it makes you feel as though that actually could be possible. It just seems to creep up on them out of nowhere and then all of a sudden these characters who were smiling and happy just a few scenes ago are dealing with the prospect that they might actually starve to death. How did you go about tackling that element of the story in a way that made it feel realistic? Well, I mean, the primary thing was William Kamkwamba and Brian Miele wrote the book of, of, of William's experience in this time. And uh, when I read that, one of the things that really was interesting to me was exactly that sense of the point of view that I had so often seen stories and stories about challenges and difficult challenges in poorer countries in the world and, the, and people facing these problems, but always from the kind of from an outside point of view, from uh, sort of looking at these issues, never really understanding what it might feel like inside of those issues. What does a famine feel like from the inside? What does a famine feel like from the inside eight months before it arrives? What is the conversation between a family after a failed harvest when there is still food, but the knowledge is that they only have food for a certain amount of time and they've got a year till the next harvest. They've got a kind of nine-month shortfall. Like What then become the dynamics? When do people decide to leave? What circumstances do they decide to stay in? What are the complications that arrive from either one of those decisions? And how does an audience who then now has that point of view or goes into that story from that point of view, is that audience also thinking about those things, wondering what they would do, what choices they would make, whether they would be the right choices and what the circumstances would bring for them. And those all seemed like really interesting and valuable questions to me. And I felt that they were unique in the sense that I hadn't seen a lot of representations from inside those kinds of points of view. And that's what I wanted to really explore. And I felt that an, an, an audience would also be very engaged potentially in that journey and also then 
in seeing William as he starts to face down those challenges in a way that we can all collectively kind of understand and see together. Final question, and I do have to shoehorn it in here because as someone who grew up in the 90s, The Lion King was quite important to me. And I do understand that you're going to be stepping into the uh, to the paws of Scar. <laughs> you don't seem like someone who has much of a dark side, not near the surface anyway. Are I you see. really having to sort of explore the depths of, of your own dark mining, side? Mining, mining the depths, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Much like you, I, I was a, a huge fan of... Um, of The Lion King as I was growing up with absolutely everybody else that I've ever met. And it has been sort of really exciting to be part of that. And I'm thrilled to do it. And and I cannot wait. I mean, but I'm much like everybody else. I can't wait to see it. You know, I can't wait for it to, to all arrive later on in the year. Well, long live the king. <laughs> Chiwetel Ejiofor, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much. My thanks to Chiwetel Ejiofor for joining me here at Midori House in London. The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind is available on Netflix now. The Big Interview is produced by Yulene Gofan and edited by Cassie Galpin. I'm Ben Ryland. Thank you for tuning in.